With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the show, bitch. Welcome to the show, bitch. We are here. The voice of an angel, I always say. Uh, so, welcome everybody. Got a lot of phenomenal stuff for you today. I'm a little late to the party on Joe Biden calling a Fox News reporter son of a bitch. But, needless to say, I have a lot to say about that. And uh, I enjoyed it very much. So we'll be talking about that. The View went after Biden for that comment. Um, well, there's a little bit of debate on the panel. You'll see. It's, it's one of the earlier segments. Um, Fox and Friends has a real heated COVID debate, and it's kind of interesting because there's tension between Ducey and Kilmeade for sure. For sure. Uh, the FDA is uh, restricting certain monoclonal antibodies. I'm going to break down that story and give you all the relevant details. Um, got bad news about Nancy Pelosi. Got the Republicans. Uh, basically pulling out of presidential debates. There's a Daily Wire psychopath who uh, is against the idea of you choosing who to marry. Yeah, that, that's real. That, that, that's an actual thing that happened. We're going to talk about that. And much more, man. Just a really jam-packed show for you today. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Kick it off with Biden. I'm a little bit late to the party on this one, but I had to talk about it. Uh, Joe Biden had a moment. He was doing some sort of press conference here, and uh, apparently it had concluded. All the reporters were clearing the room, and uh, Steve Ducey's son, a man who's so irrelevant that I still at this late date have not memorized his first name, um, nepotism boy, as I like to call him. And that's not to say there isn't nepotism all over politics. Of course there is. But this guy is only in his position because daddy's on Fox and Friends. And um, 
That's how it is. It's like, what's, his, what's that guy's name? Luke. Oh, my God, I'm going to blank on it. Oh, my God. The guy who used to host Meet the Press, who passed away. Oh, God damn it. Luke, whatever his last name is. I, I, there's going to be a thousand of you in the comment section that are like, it's Luke. Ugh. You'll know the name. Anyway, that guy was also nepotism central. So anyway, uh, Ducey asks Biden a question as he's walking out of the room. And then Biden's response here created a firestorm. Take a look. That led to um, a lot of chatter, to say the least. By the way, the guy's name is Luke Russert. Yes, I looked it up as that video was playing. His dad was Tim Russert, died. Luke Russert, for a brief period, was on NBC, I think it was, and he was terrible. It was all nepotism. Anyway, Joe Biden, uh, very snarky, very sarcastic in his response there. He's asked, and I don't know how well you could hear, but he's asked, like, Hey, is inflation going to be a liability for you going into the midterms? And his response is, no, yeah, it's a great asset. Stupid son of a bitch. Like, what what kind of a question is that? So um, you're not going to be surprised to learn that my take on this is it's phenomenal, and I want more of this. Now, of course, Biden can't help himself because he did the whole, like, I'm the civility man and I'm the decorum man when he was running against Trump. So he called Ducey and apologized to him afterwards. Ugh. 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 And we learned that because Ducey spoke to some other Fox News host. He was the Tucker or Sean Hannity or something. And um, Ducey said that during that interview. And then that became news as well. And, oh, isn't our president wonderful because he apologizes when he has phenomenal moments that he shouldn't be apologizing for. And uh, look, of course, people are making the comparisons to Trump when Trump used to go after Jim Acosta. Trump went after the media in a lot of vituperative ways. And um, at the time, the media would act like this is an attack on freedom of the press because Trump's a dick. And he would say he would say schoolyard bully things. But as I said back, that was one of my favorite parts of Trump. Now, it's not my favorite part of Trump when he would actually attempt to be authoritarian, like when he said we should ban flag burning, for example, which is deeply against the First Amendment, when he said we should expand our libel laws and copy the UK because it's too easy for the media to print lies and we need to crack down on that. That's actual authoritarianism. What is not authoritarian is just cursing out a reporter or acting like, hey, you're a fucking idiot, because a lot of these reporters are fucking idiots. Now, that's not to say Trump isn't, of course he is. Not to say Biden isn't, of course he is. But look, that question was dumb. And anybody being honest would say it's dumb. Inflation, obviously, is not something that's going to help them. Obviously, it is going to hurt them. You have all these wage gains right now, but it's wiped out because inflation is higher than the wage gain, so workers are actually losing ground. His reaction there was the most honest moment he's had in office probably his entire presidency so far. This cult of civility and decorum needs to die. So, uh, look, the substance matters, but oftentimes when Trump was a prick to the media, I was like, that's awesome. Even when Trump would be an asshole on Twitter, oftentimes I was like, that's awesome. 
It wouldn't be awesome when he's, like, threatening nuclear war with Kim Jong-un, as he'd done previously. There are lines, right? There are reasonable boundaries. But if you're being an asshole to people who are assholes and need to be put in line, well, then that's a totally different story, and that's something that I support. And here's the thing, guys. What is, what is one massive political asset that is undervalued? The answer is authenticity. It's authenticity. If you give people real human moments, they like that. And it doesn't matter how much you try to uh, proclaim that, oh, this was out of line. People sort of roll their eyes and be like, don't be ridiculous. And in fact, I think that was one of the main reasons why um, Trump ended up winning the presidency originally is that the media would go after him in so many silly ways that there was like a backlash to the media in that respect. And they would be viewed less favorably than Trump who, of course, is a charlatan con man fraud. But you have to go after people in accurate ways and intelligent ways. And this was Biden's most authentic and honest moment in office. I like what Bhaskar Sankara said of uh, Jacobin. He tweeted about this moment, and he said, I'm going to keep it real. The only way the Democrats have even a prayer in the midterms is if Biden has a moment like this every day until the midterms. And I think that's true. I genuinely think that's true, because they're not going to brag about whatever limited accomplishments they have. Um, They're not going to push to do uh, any further, better things. I mean, Build Back Better is dead in the water. Now we're talking about just giving Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema a pen and paper and saying, okay, now you write the bill and we'll just pass it. That ain't going to work. So if you're not going to materially help people and you're not going to talk about the things you already did, whatever limited things they are to materially help people, what's left? You got to be viewed as authentic and honest, and charismatic, and likable. And this is authentic, and honest, and charismatic, and likable. Who can't relate to that? Basically, the question is, oh, is inflation good or bad? What do you think? What do you think? I mean, uh, the fact that we're even having this conversation, man. And uh, I want to be fair, because there were a number of... uh, right-wing hosts, who are keeping it real about this. Like Jesse Waters, I, now, I didn't see the entire segment, but Jesse Waters apparently was like, that was kind of a stupid question. Uh, Greg Gutfeld apparently was like, Biden's right, that is kind of a stupid question. Um, so there are some on the right who are being totally fair, but then of course there's others on the right who are acting like, you know, this is unbecoming of a president. And one Republican politician even tweeted, have we ever seen a, a, a president this hostile to freedom of the press? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? And absent in the entire conversation is the actual crackdown on freedom of the press and the First Amendment, namely the uh, persecution of Edward Snowden, the attempted prosecution of Julian Assange, the war on whistleblowers that you know, started under the Obama-Biden administration. Like, we can have a conversation about actual authoritarianism and crackdowns on freedom of the press. This is not it. This is a good, solid, honest, authentic moment. And it just goes to show you how the political instincts of people inside the bubble, they get so warped because everybody around Joe Biden is part of the cult of decorum and civility. And so when he does this, everybody in his administration, I'm sure... Behind the scenes is like, hey, dog, you went too far. This is egregious. Uh, this is going to hurt us in the polls even more. It, it, 
look, I, I don't know how the apology is going to impact it or how many people even saw that, uh, that he apologized, but if he had just done it and then, like, laughed about it and was like, yeah, I'm still right about it, that shit may have given him a two- or three-point bump. It certainly among – he's been tanking among young people, and I know uh, – if you could still consider me a young person, by the way, arguable, um, that people in my general demographic watched that and they were like, that's what's up. That's what's up. I, I want to see more of that. Because that politician facade and veneer of respectability is so fake. It's from a bygone era. It's some 1986 shit. And we're not even close to living in 1986 anymore. And by the way, Joe Biden still acts the, the way he governs, he still acts like it's 1986. He went out there and said, uh, when he was running, I really think that uh, after Trump is gone, there'll be an epiphany among my Republican colleagues, and they can't wait to work with us. Look, maybe that was the case in 1986, although probably not. he's overstating that, too. But it's certainly not like that now. Mitch McConnell broke the obstruction record under Obama. He broke the filibuster record under Obama. You saw this shit firsthand. You were VP, and now you think, oh, they'll, they'll work with me. It'll be lovely. What? He's just caught in a different era, man. Not only should he not have apologized, he should have went out there and doubled down. His comment, his comment to, he shouldn't have called Ducey, and then his comment to reporters, if they ask him about it after the fact, should have been, we all know that's a stupid question. Why are we talking about this? Yeah, that's a dumb question. Uh, you've been lied to. There is such a thing as a dumb question. And Ducey asked it. And so my response was, appropriate. We want this Joe Biden. We want this Joe Biden. We don't want the Joe Biden that embraces the fake civility and decorum. He called a spade a spade here for like the first time in his life, and there was backlash for it. It reminds me, it's just all the terrible incentives in Washington, D.C. and the mainstream media always line up against the right thing. You know, it's like when he pulled out of Afghanistan and the entire media and all of his colleagues were like, this is terrible. You shouldn't do it. But he's right, and we should do that. But all the incentives were like, you shouldn't have done this, and don't you dare do it again with Iraq or anywhere else, because it's a disaster. So all the incentives push you in the wrong direction. All the incentives push Biden to don't be honest and authentic and likable and keep it real about the stupid son of a bitch that Ducey is, because he is that. He is that. Now, it would have been a different issue if he asked a question that was an intelligent question, and then Biden said that. Then I'd be like, look, I like the moxie, but that wasn't a dumb question, but it was a dumb question. So he was right to say it. Uh, look, I'm, I'm babbling on now. I've gone way too far in this segment already, but you get the gist of it. For the first time in a long time, Joe Biden had an honest, authentic, and likable moment, and then he immediately squandered it by apologizing. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Bring back this Joe Biden, like angry old man, ornery Joe Biden. Final point is, it seems like when he reacts like this, too, it seems like he's more there mentally than normal. Because normally he's in half zombie mode. He's got one foot in the grave. He's barely keeping it together. He's reading off the teleprompter and still messing it up. He's like, you want to look alive, dog? Then respond like that because it shows the wheels are turning in your brain. You got the hamster on the wheel going. And people see that when you react like this when you're present in the moment. That was a very present in the moment reaction. And people were saying, oh, he's caught on a hot mic. He had to know that mic was hot. He's got a mic right in front of him. Like the whole point is the mic right there. So he had to know that mic was hot. It wasn't like a slip up. 
And that'd be even more gangster if he, on purpose, he knew the mic was there. He's like, you stupid son of a bitch. Anyway, uh, more of this, Joe Biden. Don't listen. Everybody around Joe Biden is dead wrong in all the advice that they give him. And that's so obvious. For once in your life, put your nuts on the table and be like, here are my nuts. They are on the table. That would help you, not hurt you. Okay. Let's move on. Let's move on. We are going to talk about The View. So the women on The View uh, had a conversation about Joe Biden calling Peter Ducey, I think his first name is Peter, son of a bitch. So that's a Fox News reporter. Biden was asked a question about inflation. Hey, is the, que- the gist of the question was, is inflation going to be a political liability in the midterms? And Joe Biden was like, no, it's a great asset, stupid son of a bitch. Accurate, authentic, honest. I love it. Well, the ladies on The View have a slightly different opinion. Let's take a look and then I'll react. You know, is this politics as usual? Can sometimes people just give give it to you when you the way you you should get it back or shouldn't get it back? Or is this it's not you know bad as usual though? I mean, look, the the former president set the bar low, right? And I think one of the reasons why Joe Biden was elected, even though he has a history of being a loose cannon, Uh is he was thought to restore civility to the office. Mm -hmm. And so you know, it's not like he just you know dismissed it as as a dumb question. Like it was. He, he name-called, mm-hmm. and I just think, you know, as a mom to young kids, these are the people who should be setting examples for our kids, and it's like yet more examples of men behaving badly and, yeah. and mothers eventually having to clean it up because it's giving license yeah. to, to kids. I, I, I completely agree with you. It's sort of beneath the dignity of the, of the presidency. But what I appreciate is that he calls and he apologized. That's something that we would have never heard the former, you know, twice impeached, disgraced president of this country do. Sure, but I ever, think he should ever, ever. I think he should apologize to everyone. The difference between Biden and Trump, yeah. because Trump, let us not forget, said that the press is the enemy of the people. Yeah, right. Even Chris Wallace acknowledged that in 2019. He said, I believe that President Trump is engaged in the most direct, sustained assault on freedom of the press in our history. So, okay, so he's all the stupid SOB, he says. I, it's nothing compared it's to not what Trump said. I, I, I agree with you, but we can't keep comparing him. Yes, yes you can. Trump. I, they have an entire conversation about press freedom, and at no point do they bring up Julian Assange or Edward Snowden or the war on whistleblowers, people who are actually being punished for reporting the truth, telling the truth, exposing powerful people doing terrible things. We got Julian Assange rotting behind bars right now because he exposed U.S. war crimes. They have an entire conversation about freedom of the press, and nobody brings that up. You only count if you're part of elite media. And, you know, Joy Behar's point is when Trump cussed out big media, it was worse than when Biden did it. So now I'm going to, like, defend Biden in a weird roundabout way, saying, yeah, both are bad, but one was worse, so let's move on here. Like, look at the level of conversation that they're having. The level is so obnoxious. It's just so unserious. Bring up Julian Assange, for the love of God. That's a real crackdown on freedom of the press and free speech. Not Biden being authentic for one split second. The other part I love is when, um, is when Lisa Ling says, 
uh, it's good that he apologized to Ducey, but really Biden needs to apologize to the American people. I don't know what it is, but like the moral compass of virtually all elites in the country is totally broken. You want to know what you can apologize for? You can apologize for leaving 80 million Americans uninsured or underinsured during a pandemic. That's what you can apologize for. There was a report that came out a little while ago from Public Citizen about 33% of COVID deaths could have been prevented. 33% of COVID deaths are attributable to what they call uninsurance, namely people not having health care in a pandemic. That's, I mean, if you include the excess deaths, so we're probably already at about a million or over COVID deaths, that's 330,000 lives that could have been saved if our government did the basic thing that all other developed governments do, which is provide national health care to everybody in the country. You don't need to apologize to me for being a dick to a guy who's a dick, to having an authentic and honest moment where you say, that was a stupid question. You need to apologize to the country for leaving it hanging during a pandemic. You need to apologize to the country for 80% living paycheck to paycheck, and that was pre-COVID, pre-COVID. You need to apologize to the country for hospital, the average hospital in America charges $417 for every $100 of their cost. That's what you apologize for. The 45,000 deaths every year from lack of health care, medical bills being the number one cause of bankruptcy. That's what you apologize for. Half of workers making $30,000 a year or less. That's what you apologize for. You apologize for the endless wars where all of our tax money is going towards the military budget. And meanwhile, our basic infrastructure is crumbling. This bipartisan corporate infrastructure package was a drop in the bucket. I mean, it was what, about a trillion dollars and we need like about five trillion just to update it? Never mind like actually make it number one in the world or make it a significantly better infrastructure? You want to apologize, apologize for that. Apologize for corporations owning our government and getting whatever they want. Even, even the thing going after Trump, it's like, well, he was meaner to the press www.idontcare.com. Why would I care about that? You know what I care about what Trump did? I care about Trump doing a tax cut bill where 83% of the benefits went to the top 1%. That's what I care about that Trump did. That was bad. That was wrong. That was unacceptable. I mean, these... It's like the only conversation they know how to have is the civility and decorum conversation because the real world problems don't impact them. The, everybody on that panel is phenomenally wealthy. And if they're phenomenally wealthy, they don't know about all the economic data I just gave you. They don't know about the backwards healthcare situation. That's not their main concern. So their main concern is, I got to explain to my shitty kid that the president cursed and I can't handle that. Well, that was a stupid criticism under Donald Trump. It's a stupid criticism under Joe Biden. And it's the least of our worries. It's like they're so offended. I'm so offended by what Trump used to say and what Biden just said. What's offensive to me is 73% of the world's dictatorships being armed by the United States of America. That's what's offensive to me. But they don't even know this stuff. Of course they don't know this stuff. They're... Elites in their own bubble, and this is the entire conversation that they have. Again, uh, stop, sit there and reflect on the fact they had an entire conversation about press freedom, and nobody brought up Julian Assange. 
Nobody brought up the actual crackdown on freedom of the press and free speech. Nobody did it. Nobody did it. There's totally different sensibilities between the different generations. That's very clear. You know, the older generation of which these people are a part, clearly they still have the, the politeness sensibilities, whereas young people generally think, look, you can be as big of a dick as you want to be. Just get shit done policy-wise. I don't care how polite you are. I don't care if you're the biggest asshole in the world. If you're the biggest asshole in the world and you give people higher wages in healthcare, right on. It's just a totally different mindset and a totally different philosophy. And it, theirs is completely out of touch. I'm sorry, it is. It is. I mean, could you imagine? Biden, yes, Biden apologized to Ducey. But he should also apologize to the American people. Apologize for being honest and authentic for one second in his entire presidency. Ducey asked a stupid question, and he was like, that's a stupid question. I want more of that. No apologizing for it. More of it. So there you have it. Now you know what the view is concerned with. And it's tribal partisan bickering and decorum and civility politics. Okay. All right, let's go to Fox and Friends. This video that you're about to see is awesome. I enjoyed this very much because it's, it's actually a real discussion, believe it or not, and a real debate that happened on Fox and Friends. Now, we've seen previous clips where clearly uh, Steve Ducey and Brian Kilmeade, they don't like each other. That's very clear. Maybe there was a time when they did, but over the years, you know, sitting next to the same person for that long and you start to rub each other the wrong way. And now they very clearly have some tension and don't like each other. So what they're going to do here is they played that Bill Maher clip with Barry Weiss, where Barry Weiss and Bill Maher did this whole thing of on real time. Like, I'm just I'm done with COVID. I'm done with it. I sanitized my Pringles cans and I watched all of Tiger King and I'm done. She does this whole like grandstanding, um, you know, basically like all the COVID restrictions are complete and total bullshit. And we're sick of it. Let's quote unquote, get back to normal. Uh, That's the right thing to do. So now you'll see here, the the Fox and Friends panel mostly agrees with that. Um, But Ducey has like some reservations and then him and Kilmeade go at it. Let's take a look and then I'll react. Uh, Look, the whole thing is Omicron. The only thing that works against Omicron is uh, the uh, Glaxo uh, antibody and and the Pfizer pill. And we don't have any of those. When it comes to Delta, you know, the shots actually did provide protection. People are just frustrated. But keep in mind, it is still killing 10,000 people a week. 10,000 people a week are dying from COVID. And people are thinking, oh, you just get a, it's like a cold. I had it. It was the worst cold of my life. It was not at all pleasant. Everyone's different. Everybody is different. But but the survivability is 98%. And you want to live your life running around, hiding for two and a half years. Are you kidding? You're 100% right. I I'm certainly not hiding. I'm just being careful. A lot of people, you know, I'm in my 60s. A lot of people over 60 are being careful because they don't well, want it. And, and it's killing 10,000 people. That's away. understandable and yeah. can be. And everyone is heartbroken for these families that have lost to 10,000 family members. But when it comes to little kids, 
who are not normally affected, um, they, they do get it, but, but most of the kids, it's not that serious. It's it's variables with the variables. It depends on the age group that yeah. you're talking about. It depends yeah. on if you have comorbidities. It depends on so much. So right. I think, yeah, but we're allowed to have these discussions, and they're just sharing their frustration. And we right. all, but, it's, but it's frustration and reality. Frustration is because we're listening to people who don't know what the hell they're talking about and are ruining lives in the, in the, at the same time. Almost everything they said has been contradicted over the last two and a half years. And if you listen to them and are careful and you get it anyway and you did exactly what they said and then they changed the rules and never acknowledged that they told us the wrong stuff, that's what drives people crazy. We've destroyed our lives with people who are making it up as they go along. And they're still in charge like Anthony Fauci and the CDC director has never been more over her head. She drowns on a daily basis and no one's given her any help. We have a president out there who can't stop cursing instead of answering questions. Instead of lining up experts behind him because he clearly is not, he goes out by himself and just gives missed messaging. And the people are done with it. I want to get on, we got to get on with our lives. We got to stay on the couch. We got to work through it. His message should be, my new message is, Living with it, not running from it. Here's how. Move back to work. But you've got to be careful. In what way? It, it's still what mask? Does the mask work being careful? Then they right. tell us the cloth mask doesn't work. Really? Two and a half years later, I'm wearing a mask right. that doesn't work? Right. Every, everybody in this building, for the most part, except us, is wearing a mask. Right. So, but they don't Brian, work. They just told us they don't work. There's always something 2%. Well, people because people don't want us wearing N95 where you can't breathe and ends up with dents on your face. We want to do that for the rest of our lives? It just depends on your age group. My friends that are in their 80s, they're just not going out. If they go outside, if they eat outside, they, yeah, if they go to a restaurant, they eat careful. outside. That's but, right. but do you want them kicked out of a restaurant if they walk no, in and decide not, not to? Not. That's what we're at right, right. now. People live their lives on a regular basis. All right, so let's break this down a little bit. First of all, the mask claim. Uh, it's overstated. Uh, yes, cloth masks don't work nearly as well as other masks, but they are better than nothing. So there was a study from Bangladesh that came out not too long ago. Uh, cloth masks stop about 37% of particulate matter. They're not going to stop the tiny aerosols that the virus uh, can be carried in. But then you have surgical masks, and the fabric that surgical masks is made out of is made specifically to try to you know, reject uh, those little aerosols and, of course, the big droplets. And so surgical masks block 76% of particulate matter. And by the way, all this is important because viral load might be a serious issue. Viral load is how much of the virus are you taking in? Because if you're getting a giant dose of it up front, you can probably have a worse bout with COVID than if you get a smaller amount up front. Anyway, and then you have uh, KN95 masks. I didn't see specifics on them, but uh, the general understanding is that they're roughly in the area of surgical masks with how good they are. Uh, they have to be real and not fake ones, which is a totally separate question. But then N95 masks actually have a 95 to 99% protection rate uh, from the virus. Now, a lot of people might think, well, hold on now, I've been masked and then I got the virus and I was even wearing maybe an N95 mask and I still got the virus. Well, then that comes full circle to what I've told you guys before on this show. I seem to be the only person talking about it two years into the pandemic, but there were a number of studies that found that COVID can enter through your eyes. So if you're wearing uh, N95 masks, that's you know, protects you almost perfectly, 95 to 99%, and you ended up getting COVID, it's very likely the case that it got in through your eyes. I mean, think about it. Somebody's coughing four feet away from you in your direction, and uh, your, your respiratory system is covered, but your eyes are wide open and available for stuff to get into it. What's going to happen? It's going to get into your eyes. Okay. Anyway, I digress from that. So it's a little overstated, hey, mass, uh, you know, cloth masks don't work. They don't work nearly as well as the other masks, but it still could help with viral load, so on and so forth. Now, 
Kilmeade is pointing something out there that's actually true. He's pointing out, look, the institutions and the officials have lied to us or just flat out been wrong every step of the way. And so people don't trust them and they're right not to trust them. On that point, I think he's, he's kind of right. But he takes it one step further, which is, hey, that's the case, and therefore, it's all bullshit. No, that makes no sense. The fact that the institutions and the officials have lied or just been wrong almost every step of the way just means you should look at them skeptically. So, you know, you should try to verify whatever they're saying by looking at other independent studies, hopefully peer-reviewed as well. Um, that's not to say, don't be cynical, because there are a lot of people who've gone full cynical in response to this, which just means that's, that's uh, kill me position. Since they've been wrong, therefore, it's all bullshit. And you just throw your arms up. You're like, we don't have any answers. We don't know any answers. We can't know any answers. And therefore, I'm just going to let it rip, which gets to the broader conversation about the economy here. Guys, kill me. You won. You won. Bill Maher, Barry Weiss, you won. You're getting your exact policy preference. It's happening right now. Everything's open. We are letting it rip. We are just living our lives. And guess what? Look, there are upsides to that, of course. I'm sure from a mental health perspective, a lot of people are doing better because any sort of lockdown is generally tough psychologically, so on and so forth. But it's also true that letting it rip, we have 2,000 deaths a week. That's what we have right now. That's just a fact. You might not like it. You might want to prioritize your feelings over the facts, but that is a fact. And so if you look at that and you say, I've decided it's okay, well, fair enough. But just say that. Be honest about that. Because Kilmeade actually was too honest at one point, and he let slip what he's really thinking, which is, get back to work. Oh, get back to work. Now, a lot of people don't have jobs where they can, quote, unquote, get back to work and be relatively safe. A lot of people working in the service sector, lower-wage workers, people who are generally poor, um, they have much higher-risk jobs. And what Kilmeade wants is for those people to definitely get back to work because it's an inconvenience for him if those people are not back to work. Again, just be honest and upfront with all this stuff because that's the gist of it. And be honest and upfront with this stuff that you guys are taking the, you know, the Koch brothers approach, the billionaire and corporate America approach of like, okay, we can handle 2,000 deaths a week. Just, just get back to work. Now, the reason why um, Ducey is more cautious here. And he said it. He said, listen, I'm in my 60s. I had it. And if it's a cold, it was the worst cold of my life. So he had it. And he had a bad case of it. Okay. And this is, there's a conservative instinct. Whenever something happens directly to you, that's when you change your mind. So you could show them all the empirical data in the world. Hey, here's what's happening to other people. And they're, they just yawn and shrug it off. Ducey's like, this happened to me. I'm in my 60s. If it was a cold, it was the worst cold of my life. It was terrible. Therefore, he understands and he gets why people should be taking massive precautions. So he has a little bit of a softer view on it because it personally impacted him. Now, the other point that uh, Ducey made, which I think is, is correct, is that right now there are two things that we know work, well, maybe three things that we know work against Omicron. Um, there's GlaxoSmithKline monoclonal antibodies. That still works against Omicron, but there's a shortage of that. There's a Pfizer pill, not the same as the Merck pill. The Merck pill is very ineffective, even though it was approved by the FDA. But the Pfizer pill works. There's a shortage of that. So the two things that really work, there's a shortage of that. Remdesivir works too. Uh, I don't think there's a shortage of that. They're going to ramp up use of remdesivir. But so like there's two or three things that work. Um, the real problem, in my opinion, 
is putting aside all this thing about lockdown, don't lock down, vaccine mandate, no vaccine mandate. Biden should have invoked the Defense Production Act to increase the supply of all the monoclonal antibodies. And yes, now two of the three don't work. Okay, that's fine, but maybe there'll be another variant where they do work. But you should have had the GlaxoSmithKline antibody sitting there in a massive supply when we were in the pandemic. You should have used the Defense Production Act. You should have the Pfizer pill in massive supply. The fact that they don't invoke the Defense Production Act today and, and do that is a crime. It's a crime. So there are there is blame to go around. I think most of the blame goes on the government because there was a study from Public Citizen. Thirty three percent of covid deaths could have been prevented. Thirty three percent of covid deaths are attributable to what we call uninsurance, which is people don't have insurance. They're either uninsured or underinsured. They want to go to the hospital when they're sick and they end up dying. So that's If you look at the excess deaths today, the real COVID death rate is probably just over a million. That means 330,000 people's lives could have been saved if we just had universal health care. Whose fault is that? That's the government's fault. That's the government's fault. So, yes, blame Biden. Yes, blame the government. They should have acted in a more intelligent way, and they didn't. And now, instead of having that conversation, the conversation we're having is we're at each other's throats, talking about which mitigation um, approaches are most reasonable and not. And the right wing generally now is against everything, you know, like they don't want not only do they not want a vaccine mandate. Well, fair. I didn't want a hard vaccine mandate either. But they were also against vaccine, vaccinate or test, which is not a vaccine mandate. It's a choice. They don't want that either. They don't want that. And then also they turn around and they're like, well, we don't want masks either then. So you don't want vaccine or test, and you don't want masks, and you want to get back to letting it rip. Okay, then just own the fact that you're going to have 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 maybe deaths per week. Own that fact. Just own it. And, but they don't own it. They want to say, get back to normal, but also don't look at any of the negative side effects of getting back to normal. Well, look, I'm not pro-lockdown, but I don't have a cinder block where my brain is supposed to be, so I could look at the, the negative effects and be honest about them. Look, the real answer, and it was the answer all along, from day one, you should have paid people to get vaccinated. Um, Or the vaccine or test policy was now slapped down by the Supreme Court, so you can't do that. Congress, in theory, could have passed a law to directly say vaccinate or test, but they didn't do that. But up front, if you really wanted to do the right policies, either pay people to get vaccinated, uh, do a vaccinate or test policy that was more specific so it would stand a test from the Supreme Court potentially, I mean, that was the approach and create all of the therapeutics through the Defense Production Act, which would have helped us stave off uh, the worst effects of this and beef up hospital um, hospital capacity, which is another thing that Biden could have done, but he didn't do because now, and now you have uh, hospitals overflowing. I think that was the right approach. And then, yeah, I mean, if you are unvaccinated, you have to understand you're at much higher risk and would it be intelligent for them to probably wear masks? Yes, it would. And I get it. Look, I've been, uh, I'm vaccinated, and when I have to wear a mask, I do wear a mask. It's not really about me in that instance because I'm looking out more for the unvaccinated people because I'm going to be generally okay if I get COVID. I mean, the numbers are clear. You have over 90% protection from severe illness, hospitalization, and death, even with Omicron with the vaccine. So you can still spread it. So the, the ability to prevent the spread of the virus has reduced massively with the new variants, but you still have the protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So when I wear a mask, it's more looking out for the unvaccinated than looking out for myself. And so I don't think 
Am I slightly annoyed by it? Sure. But I know it, it also might end up, if I have COVID and I'm asymptomatic and I'm spreading it, if I'm wearing the mask, I might end up saving somebody or their grandma because I was kind enough to wear the mask. So, look, I'm not in favor of lockdowns, but I do think that if you're not going to have lockdowns, then the basic public health measures should be in place. And that's everything I just described. Should have been a vaccinator test policy or should have been pay people to get vaccinated policy. Should have beefed up hospital capacity and beefed up the Defense Production Act for all the therapeutics that actually work on this thing. That needed to be done. And yes, in some instances, mask mandates. Uh, because I don't want 2,000 people dying per week. I want us to be open and everything to be functioning, but I also don't want 2,000 people dying per week. And if people are telling you they want the let it rip strategy, okay, well, we're kind of witnessing that right now, and the result is 2,000 people dying per week. So they're, if they're, their answer, if they're being honest, is throwing up their hands and saying, fuck it. And, of course, it's fuck it unless and until it impacts you or your family or whatever, then it's like, oh, my God, this is a tragedy. Yeah, no shit. The fucking over a million COVID deaths when you include the excess uh, death rate in the country, that wasn't enough to open your eyes to it? Well, no, it's only when you experience it personally do people really have the light bulb moment because a lot of times people are selfish. So Ducey, since he had the personal experience, he's trying to, like, moderate the conversation here a little bit and be like, guys, don't, just because the government has been wrong on many things, they've maybe lied in some instances and the institutions and the officials are constantly wrong, doesn't mean you can say, it's all bullshit, throw your hands up and let it rip. Because there are consequences to that, and you at least have to acknowledge the consequences to that. And they don't want to do that. They want to have their cake and eat it too, say, get back to normal. And let's just not talk about people dying uh, per week and the hospitals being overburdened. And, I mean, think of the, the stress you put on them, nurses, doctors. Do you just not give a fuck about them? And the answer is that, correct, they don't give a fuck about them, which is why even minor mitigation things like masks or vaccinator tests, they flip out over. So anyway, look, final, final thing, just get vaccinated. That's it. If you get vaccinated, you're largely going to be okay. You know, I mean, that's what the data shows every day or not every day. Like every week I see a new chart that comes out where it's like unvaccinated hospitalization. It goes straight up with Omicron. Vaccinated hospitalization rate, almost a total flat line, maybe a tiny uptick. But usually that's people who are vaccinated, but then they have like some serious comorbidities and like two or three of them or they're like massively overweight or something. So it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. If you do get vaccinated, you're largely going to be okay, so just get vaccinated. And then, you know, the conversation becomes more abstract and esoteric if you're vaccinated and everybody you know is vaccinated. But clearly, Kilmeade and Ducey don't like each other, and this is another example of it yet again. Okay, next one. Now we're going to talk about a very hot-button hot topic here. Very hot-button topic. Let me pull up the details. So this story is, um, it's really being taken out of context on Twitter. Wow, what a shock. Things are being taken out of context on Twitter? Yes. (laughs) Yes, 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 a million times over. Happens all the time. But this one is more egregious than usual. So let me go ahead and throw this up on the screen for you. FDA halts use of antibody drugs that don't work versus Omicron. The regulatory move was expected because the Regeneron and Eli Lilly treatments are less able to target Omicron because of its mutations. Okay, so let me put this in layman's terms for you. The federal government said um, two of the three monoclonal antibodies, they've been unauthorized now. They were authorized to treat 
the original strain of COVID and Delta. Uh, now those monoclonal antibodies are being effectively taken off the market. Now, they still reserve the right to reauthorize them if a new variant comes out and that variant is able to be treated by them. But as of right now, it doesn't work against Delta. There were some studies that came out in December that said that, and there were a number of experts that came forward and said, look, this isn't working at all. And uh, since that's the case, they're like, okay, well, then we would be helping public health and safety if we remove it from the market. Because there are also, granted in a very small number of people, but there are some adverse side effects to the monoclonal antibodies. And if you're treating somebody with one of the monoclonal antibodies that doesn't work and they have Omicron, then it's, that's not good because you can instead be treating them with something that does work like remdesivir, for example, and they're, they're not doing that. So people might end up getting more sick and some might even end up dying as a result of that if you sort of leave it on the market. So in response to this, Florida turned around and they shut, they have uh, infusion centers for monoclonal antibodies, which by the way, was a wonderful idea. I highly support the fact that they did that, that they opened those centers. Texas has them too. Um, the reason why conservative states are more into that is because Generally speaking, the conservative states and some of the conservative and Republican governors have been more anti-vaccine, so they want to have something that they can rely on, so they end up opening up these monoclonal antibody centers. Honestly, I would have opened them up around the entire country. If I was a Democratic governor, I would have opened up a monoclonal antibody infusion center because it is a treatment that was highly effective. Uh, But now, since the facts on the ground have changed, well, they've had to change the regulatory approach. So, and just so everybody understands, as of January 4th, 95% of U.S. COVID cases were Omicron. So it just totally wiped out Delta across the country. That was on January 4th. As of today, it's probably 99 or like 99.9% are Omicron cases, which is why they're taking this step now. So there have been a number of instances where, you know, our officials and the institutions have either lied to us or been dead wrong about something. Based on everything I've read, this is not the case with this instance. It actually doesn't work. And so it's a good thing for them to take it off the market. Now, there's more information, though. So... The two that they took off the market, one is made by Regeneron and the other one is made by Eli Lilly. And, but there is another one from GlaxoSmithKline. The one from GlaxoSmithKline has been working. So they're keeping the GlaxoSmithKline one on the market. Now, the bigger problem with that, though, is there's a shortage, of course. So the one monoclonal antibody treatment that works, there's a shortage. Well, this is where you blame Biden because Biden should have invoked the Defense Production Act to massively increase the supply of all the different antibody treatments, and then it would always be available, or there would certainly be more of it than now. About 300,000 people have gotten the treatment, and um, they should have been prepared for this. Also, there's a Pfizer pill that works against COVID. There's a Merck one that doesn't really work, but the Pfizer pill does work, and uh, that's in short supply too. So look, if it was me, and I'm Florida, I'm not going to shut down the monoclonal antibody treatment center. In the interim, I'll transfer it over to uh, um, a remdesivir center, because that still works against COVID, and then when you get enough of the GlaxoSmithKline antibody uh, treatment, then I would put it back to that. Monoclonal antibody treatment center where it actually is the one that works, or maybe you have a mix of that and the remdesivir uh, treatment center. So, quote, doctors have alternative therapies to battle, this is from the article, battle early COVID-19 cases, including two new antiviral pills from Pfizer and Merck, the Merck one doesn't really work, uh, but both are in short supply. Both Regeneron and Eli Lilly previously announced they were developing new antibodies that target Omicron. So this is a very important fact that people need to understand. If this is some sort of conspiracy from Biden and the federal government to restrict a treatment that doesn't work, well, why is it that Eli Lilly and Regeneron are both like, yeah, our our thing is not working against Omicron, so we're going to come up with a new 
antibody treatment that does work on Omicron. Not some sort of conspiracy. It's not some, you know, attempt to restrict any sort of therapeutic, thereby forcing people to get the vaccine. They want people to get the vaccine, but they don't want to restrict any other treatments that might work on the back end. And Regeneron and Eli Lilly know this, which is why they're trying to create a new formula that works. Uh, So regulators have now broadened the use of remdesivir, the first drug approved for COVID-19 to treat more patients. So that's exactly what I was just saying they should do. Now, they say this, though, quote, the drug requires three consecutive IV infusions over three days when used for non-hospitalized patients. That time-consuming process won't be an option for many overcapacity hospitals facing staff shortages. So that's the only problem with that is with remdesivir, early treatment works, but uh, early treatment is difficult because it requires IV infusions over a three-day period. You know, you try getting that much time in your schedule uh, in the midst of uh, work and everything else. And look, you should do it, but it's very difficult for people. So that is one impediment. The other impediment is just like with the monoclonal antibodies uh, and just like with the vaccine, in a small number of patients, there are also side effects that can come along with the remdesivir. Uh, The FDA made its decision based on a 560 patient study that showed a nearly 90% reduction in hospitalizations when remdesivir is given within seven days of symptoms. The study predates the Omicron variant, but like other antivirals, remdesivir is expected to maintain its performance against the latest variant. See, that part's a little sketchy. Now, hold on. You're telling me that um, we did the study pre-Omicron, but, and it had a 90% success rate, but we still think it's going to work against Omicron, so we're going to allow this. Well, shouldn't you know it works against Omicron before you go all in on this approach? Because that, you, you have two separate standards, one for remdesivir, one for the monoclonal antibodies. You should do at least some sort of interim quick study. Don't, it doesn't even need to be peer-reviewed or do a number of them in, in the short term, which will show you, does this work against Omicron? So, look, I have, there, I have a friend who's a doctor, and he seems to believe, no, it does work against Omicron. Okay, fair enough. But there should be more data for that because it's easy for people to turn around and say, well, you haven't proved this works against Omicron and you're going to allow it, but the monoclonal antibody treatment you're not going to allow? Now, granted, we know the monoclonal antibody treatments don't work. Two of the three don't work against Omicron. So maybe it's a slightly different story, but you should probably know it about remdesivir before you sort of go all in on it. Because it's possible we learn, hey, maybe that doesn't work as well either. But anyway, listen. Based on everything I've read, this appears to be a decision that is based on the science. And if it was some sort of conspiracy to restrict treatments that work from people, then why didn't they pull the GlaxoSmithKline one? They left it because it works. So the real criticism here, which is a criticism everybody should be making, is why the hell didn't they increase the supply of these a year ago? Why didn't they do the Defense Production Act? Why don't they have uh, you know, a stockpile as, as far as the eye can see of this GlaxoSmithKline and uh, monoclonal antibody treatment. And along with the other ones, now granted, the other treatments would be sitting there. We would have overproduced them and they'd be sitting there if we went all in with the Defense Production Act. But fair enough. I'd rather have that sitting there, the excess sitting there that doesn't work, and the one that works, than none of them really available. So that's the real criticism. But of course you have, you know, Candace Owens came out and said something along the lines of, Joe Biden wants people to die. So the implication is like, they're restricting this drug even though they know it works. That's just not true, man. That's just not true. And that's like Alex Jones tier level conspiracy. It is. So the one that works is still out there. They just need to produce more of it. The Pfizer pill is still out there. They just need to produce more of it. 
Um, Remdesivir is still out there. Uh, they, I think they have a pretty solid um, stockpile of that. But uh, this decision they made is not a bad decision. It's not a bad decision at all, in my opinion. Um, if I was in Florida, though, and, you know, they're shutting down their monoclonal antibody treatment centers, I would transfer them temporarily to remdesivir centers, but then also keep them open for when the GlaxoSmithKline one comes in greater supply, because they're trying to ramp up production now, but the problem is they're only doing it as the company themselves. They don't have all the backing and the resources of the federal government in the Defense Production Act, which that would be very helpful if they did have that. So anyway, there's the story. Don't let people lie to you and gaslight you and act like, you know, they're restricting it even though they know it works. A lot of the headlines on this have been so misleading. The, one of the reasons I gave you guys this article is because this is the one headline that was actually kind of honest about it, you know. So anyway, there it is. Hopefully they can ramp up the production of the one that works because it's desperately needed. Okay. Next, let's talk about Dan Crenshaw. So there's been uh, a bit of a firestorm in Washington, D.C. over, uh, goes a while back when Nancy Pelosi was asked, hey, should you guys really be able to trade stocks in Congress? Because we have this new report that just came out. There's one from Business Insider, then one from Unusual Whales. And both the reports were like, so many of these, over 100 of these people in uh, Congress are beating the market and trading stocks on a regular basis. And, you know, look, there's insider trading. This is corrupt. This is bad. And they're already in violation of the Stock Act, which is you have to at least, like, disclose what you're doing. And a lot of them are not even disclosing what they're doing. But even the ones who are disclosing are just showing how they're cheating, basically. Um, so Nancy Pelosi swatted this aside and was like, it's the free market. We should be able to participate in it. Oh, God. Well, then John Ossoff came out and he was like, no, here's a bill that I'm proposing to ban not only Congress people from trading stocks, but also their like close dependents. I think it's, you know, uh, significant others and uh, family members, kids, so on and so forth. Uh, And also Josh Hawley proposed a bill on this as well. Josh Hawley's bill, I think it doesn't have as much teeth in it as uh, Ossoff's bill does, but Hawley proposed a bill on it as well. And so now you have some momentum behind this idea of, look, this is absurd. This should already be illegal. Let's do something on it. Well, Dan Crenshaw was on a podcast here. I'm about to play it for you. And he was asked this question about people in Congress trading stocks. And his response is something else. There is one topic that I definitely want to get straight from the horse's mouth on this one. It wasn't very long ago that Nancy Pelosi was asked a question in regards to can members, sitting members of Congress, or should they be allowed to have direct involvement in the trading uh, in the stock market and things such as that? And she said, yes, the capitalist society, she supports that. And there was an article that was just published about yourself. I'm pretty sure you're probably aware of this. It basically talked about, I've seen some turning point people posting about this and said, uh, this is coming from Texas Signal saying Dan Crenshaw's stock trading yielded the fifth highest return in Congress, uh, basically still pointing out that your campaign had received a donation from Boeing, they had lobbied, um, things such as that. Where do you stand on the number two, twofold question? Do you believe that sitting members of Congress should be allowed to trade in the stock market, even though you kind of have direct insight and somewhat control over how that flow goes and which government favorite corporations to get where I'm going? Um, let's, let's start with that one first. Where do you stand on that? Um, I, mean, I think it'd be fine if you wanted to ban individual stock trading. Um, notice I said individual stock. 
improve our infrastructure. That's what you'd be thinking about first and foremost. That'd be the whole point. But he makes it, well, of course we want to better ourselves financially. Duh. Go to Wall Street. Go to Wall Street. Go to any other place that that's the point of those areas. And of course, they should be regulated and taxed highly, et cetera, as well. But at least go into a field that's supposed to be for that. See, don't go be a public servant and then whine that you got to serve the public because you want to serve yourself and you want to you try to get ahead or whatever, better yourself. It just shows you total, complete mindset difference from somebody who's there for the right reasons. Because he's admitting, hey, this is what's going on in my head. This is what I'm thinking about. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because how can anybody trust you that you're looking out for them? Because you're not looking out for them. And we've had a number of examples. Okay, Tom Price, former head of Health and Human Services under Donald Trump. He was a congressperson. I believe there was a medical device company that he invested in heavily. And then as head of Health and Human Services, he made moves to massively increase the stock price of the medical device company that he was invested in. That's self-dealing. That's corruption. That shouldn't be allowed. Uh, you have the very famous meeting with uh, Kelly Leffler and Purdue and like Diane Feinstein. You had all these powerful politicians meet just before the crash because of COVID. And they were told in no uncertain terms, hey, dog, the market's about to tank skis. So you do with that information whatever you want. And what did all of them do? They all went and cashed in and made sure they weren't there for the downfall so that they profited off of insider knowledge. So, I mean, this is all a problem. They shouldn't even be investing in the first place. They shouldn't even have money in the stock market in the first place. You have the classic example of Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi, there was a debate going on about antitrust, so like anti-monopoly measures that were going to be taken. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, of course, learned firsthand and was probably directly involved in making the measures toothless. So Nancy Pelosi goes and tells her husband, hey, dog, this antitrust stuff ain't happening. It's going to be toothless. So you should invest now in Google. And then when everybody learns, hey, the measures are toothless, the stock price is going to go up, and then you're going to make a lot of money off of it. And that's exactly what happened. She told her husband, her husband invested, they made a lot of money off of it. Why is it they always beat the market? They always beat the market because they're insider trading and they're cheating. That's why they always beat the market. They shouldn't even be allowed to invest. Even the people who are investing and are doing it ethically, where they're not acting off inside information, however few of them there are in Congress, and I'm sure there's a couple, even they shouldn't be doing that. It, this, it, we function as an oligarchy and a kleptocracy, and they're all part of the club, and everybody gets screwed in the process. And that's why you often see their approval rating is between 7% and 25%, because everybody knows they're full of shit. And here's Dan Crenshaw, now that he's inside the club, he doesn't even realize how stupid he sounds and how self-serving he sounds. What we do, and we're on to you. And so this guy can't go a day without shoving his foot in his mouth. He's, in, he's in a, currently in a fight with, like, Matt Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, and he's trying to act like, you know, I'm the true conservative and the true heir apparent to Trump. And, like, nobody likes you. Those people are really dumb, but they're also more authentic. This guy, Dan Crenshaw, is just totally uncharismatic and unlikable. He votes basically the same way that they vote. You know, whoever votes 92% with Trump or 98% with Trump or whatever, they vote the same way. The difference is this guy has no charisma. He's not likable. And um, he desperately wants to be adored by at least the right-wing base. And so everything he does is to try to get their adoration, and they just don't like him because he took some shots at Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are bigger stars among the right-wing base. He wants that media attention. He wants it. 
but he can't get it in a positive way because he's a dunce, and he says stuff like this. So there you have it, Dan Crenshaw, just leave Congress. Just leave, because clearly you don't belong there. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, got a lot more for you, including, uh-oh, Nancy Pelosi's back in the news. It's not for a good reason. And Trump is about to launch his free speech platform. I'll tell you how that's going.
We are back, bitch. All right, welcome back to the show, everybody. Welcome back, Cotter. Still got a number of amazing stories for you. Some good, some bad, some in between. All right, let's talk about Nancy Pelosi. Oh, no. Oh, no. Nancy Pelosi at age 81, has announced that uh, she's going to do a re-election campaign. Oh, so tired, dog. I'm so tired. Now, listen, I will say this. The issue is not that she's 81. That's not the issue. And I see a lot of people framing it like that. I don't agree with that. Because if Bernie Sanders announced a re-election campaign at age 92, I'd be like, hell yeah, dog. Go do you. Um, So the issue is not that she's 81. The issue is that she's Nancy Pelosi and that she is one of the leaders of the Democratic Party and she is the epitome of a corporate Democrat. She's a quintessential corporate Democrat. That's the problem. Um, So the reaction to this was interesting, though. It was very interesting to me because you would expect that, you know, the left, of course, is unified in our like hatred of this because it's time it's time to move on we got to get past new uh the new democrat philosophy of triangulation and we're half republicans that's why you should vote for us we don't want that we don't want that we got to get past that that's what nancy pelosi uh is the perfect example of um but i expected the corporatists to be like rock on we love this turns out even a lot of corporate democrats are not on board. So this is a great example of it here. This is CNN uh, and Jake Tapper's show, and he's talking to uh, Bakari Sellers. Bakari Sellers is definitely more aligned with the, the corporate wing of the Democratic Party. Listen to his commentary, and then if you want to get a good chuckle, keep your eye on the face of the other guy in this conversation, because it made me laugh. Uh, Bakari, uh, speaking of uh, congressional leadership... House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just literally a few minutes ago tweeted, quote, while we have made progress, much more needs to be done to improve people's lives. This election is crucial. Nothing less is at stake than our democracy. But we don't agonize. We organize. I am running for re-election to Congress to deliver for the people and defend democracy, unquote. She's turning 82 in March, the House Speaker, and and when she uh, won't... um, I guess the, the, when she last won the, the speakership uh, last year for the fourth time, she promised that would be her last time. What do you think? Is it a mistake for her to run again, or is there really no one else who can, who can do the job she can? Well, I, she didn't say that she was going to run for speaker, I don't believe. I think she just announced she's running for re-election. Um, I firmly believe that it's time for new leadership in the House Democratic Caucus. I think it's uh, time for new leadership um, throughout the Democratic Party. Not only do we have to get younger, but we have to be more vibrant and we have to have bigger and bolder ideas to bring in a new generation of voters. Now, I will also say in the same breath that Nancy Pelosi will go down in history as probably the greatest speaker of all time. Uh, Whether or not you're talking about uh, ushering a a country through uh, COVID or passing uh, Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act. So her legacy is already written. But there comes a time, whether or not you're Nancy Pelosi or whether or not you're, you know, Tom Brady, that, that sometimes you have to hang up the cleats when it comes to, you know, being leader of your particular 
particular party or leader of your organization. And I think she recognizes that. Part of being a great leader is knowing when it's time to turn the reins over. Uh, all right. Uh, greatest speaker of all time. Look, I'm, I'll be fair here. Um, I don't know jack shit about the other speakers. I know one of them was like a pedophile, so all right, better than him. <laughs> I'll give you that. Uh, and But look, it's not just me, and I follow politics closely for a living, but, you know, I don't know the history of speakers of the House, So, but I'm, I'm willing to bet she's not the greatest of all time, because if this is the greatest of all time, then literally every single speaker in American history was an abysmal disaster bordering on flat-out evil. So, but I mean, that, that claim, come on. And what's his evidence of it? Well, she, uh, she ushered us through COVID. Oh, really? How's that going? How's that going? 2,000 deaths a week still, two years into the pandemic. When you look at the, the actual COVID death rate, when you include not just the official COVID deaths, but what's called the excess death, deaths. So in other words, here's how many people would die in a normal year. Here's how many more died. Um, during COVID that weren't technically COVID deaths, but probably your COVID deaths, when you include them, it's over a million COVID deaths already. And he's like, she ushered us through COVID. Well, if this is success, what's failure? What would failure have been? Five million deaths? I'm seriously asking. And then the other point is, well, there was Obamacare too. So let me get this straight. Democrats with a supermajority pass a Republican reform, and that's success? I would categorize that as failure. That's what I would do. You got to remember, guys, you heard this a thousand times from me, but I'm going to say it a thousand more. Obamacare, the whole idea behind Obamacare is what's called an individual mandate system. An individual mandate system was birthed by the Heritage Foundation, which is a right-wing think tank, and it was their counter to national single-payer health care. They said, look, the left-wing idea is basically a government takeover of at least health insurance, in some instances health care, too. That's their idea. Our idea is Keep the for-profit health insurance companies in control and just mandate that everybody has to buy health insurance. Just force people to buy health insurance on the so-called free market. That was Obamacare. You know who used to support this idea? Newt Gingrich, Chuck Grassley, Mitt Romney implemented a version of it in Massachusetts. Now, you can turn around and say, hey, man, it's better than nothing. Fair enough. I'll give you that. But better than nothing doesn't mean it's good or successful. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Not only did it not cover everybody in the country, also the second Republicans got control they destroyed it in a thousand ways, so it doesn't stand the test of time, like bold universal programs generally do, like Medicare, for example. The people, you know, try to, they want to, Republicans want to destroy those programs. They've had a hard time. Why? Because they're universal in nature. It's harder to destroy a universal program because then everybody loses access to the benefits of it. So, uh, greatest speaker of all time. My ass cheeks, greatest speaker of all time. Are you shitting my dick? Greatest speaker of all time. Uh, but I will say, you heard what he said at the beginning there. What he said at the beginning is, uh, is fair. He's like, look, all right, you know, you had your run. Wrap it up. Um, I don't know why you're doing this. It's time to hang up the cleats. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not, that's not the case because of her age. It's perfectly possible somebody 81 years old can be doing a good job. That's possible. The age has nothing to do with it. The problem is she is so tied to corporate interests and she represents them over the people. And she represents, 
She's the embodiment of the degradation of the Democratic Party and the movement of the Democratic Party away from being a party of workers. I mean, look, Democrats, before the DLC, they used to take most of their money from unionists and teachers and lawyers. They didn't take corporate money, or they certainly didn't take much of it. And then it was Bill Clinton in that era that ushered in Democrats saying, why don't we just copy the Republicans and take corporate money too? And then as soon as they started doing that, what happened? The Democrats became much more right-wing. That's what Nancy Pelosi represents. That's what she represents, which is why she either doesn't support bold universal reforms, or if she nominally does, what happens? Oh, would you look at that in the negotiation process? We had to drop all of the universal reforms, and we ended up back in our neoliberal original spot. You see a similar thing happening with Bill Back Better. Do I trust her to fight for big, bold reforms? No, because she doesn't have a track record of delivering on them ever, ever. So when you have even Bakari Sellers is saying, all right, dog, wrap it up. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? There's widespread agreement. It's time for a new era. Now, I have no doubt that Bakari's version of a new era is like, let's have younger people who are perhaps more diverse, who embrace, to one extent or another, the philosophy of Nancy Pelosi. I would disagree with him on that, but I do agree it's time to move on past Nancy Pelosi. And also, look, I, credit where credit is due, even though Bakari and I have a million disagreements with each other, obviously, he did support Nina Turner in that, in that race uh, when she was running for Congress. And there was, a, you know, the, the corporate Democrat, I forget her name now, but she ended up winning. But Bakari supported Nina. Now, I don't know if that's because there was like a personal relationship and they liked each other, so he ended up supporting her, or if there was some ideological angle to it. I don't know, but frankly, I don't care. At least he did the right thing on that front. His politics, more generally, I don't agree with, and he's corporatist. But, hey, I'm happy you supported Nina, so I will, I will say that. Um, yeah, it's time. Nancy, you got to go. You got to go. Nobody on the left is happy about this. She has such an underwater approval rating. The other thing is, this, it really does hurt electorally to have Nancy Pelosi as one of the figureheads of your party. Because there is widespread hatred of her. I mean, I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but she's way underwater with her appro- approval rating. Bernie might be the only Democrat that has like an above-water approval rating right now. So you, she's not what we need. She's the exact opposite of what we need. And this geriatric leadership that's totally out of touch is part and parcel of the problem. Again, not because of their age, but because of their politics. So, for the love of God, no. Now, he says, well, she didn't say she's going to run for speaker. She's going to run for re-election because she had previously promised, uh, I'm done. No, if she runs for re-election, she's probably going to win, and she's probably going to be speaker again. So, that's that. Shahid Batar should have won, but, of course, uh, the firing squads were turned on him, and the left ate itself, and it was divide and conquer that worked. Um, if he runs again, I hope he wins. It's a massive uphill battle, as he knows. Hopefully the left can organize itself strong enough where you make a, a, a better run against her and, and perhaps can dethrone her. Can't say it's not possible. There have been people in leadership positions who've been knocked out before. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez knocking out Joe Crowley. He was next in line to be speaker. That was phenomenal. Eric Cantor lost to David Bratt. Eric Cantor was one of the leaders of the, of the Republican Party. He was beaten by, uh, like, a fake populist right-winger. We know the formula. The formula is, um, you know, dedication, organizing, charisma, but also populism. So it's possible to take her down, but it is a battle, and I'm not going to lie to you guys about that. Uh, but it is a sad, sad day because, yet again, it's the old guard clinging on to power with every ounce of what's left of their might. Here we go.
So Donald Trump uh, is, you know, he launched a, or is launching a new social media platform. Uh, I think it's called Truth Social, which is hilarious that Donald Trump is calling his social media platform Truth. This is a guy who has uh, not a great relationship with the truth, to say the least. But there's some interesting stuff to report on this, so take a look. Throw it up there on screen now. Mediaite says, Donald Trump's new social media platform, which has been advertised as encouraging an open, free, and honest global conversation, will reportedly rely on big tech software to heavily moderate content to ensure it remains family-friendly. So they're going to moderate. Brooke Singman, writing for Fox Business, reported, But those involved in the final stages of the platform's development told Fox Business that they anticipate that malign actors will target the site and attempt to flood the platform with illegal content, especially during and immediately after their formal launch. Fox Business has learned that TMTG is partnering with Hive, a San Francisco-based Series D startup that provides automated solutions through cloud-based artificial intelligence for understanding images, videos, and text content. Hive's technology provides automated content moderation across video, image, text, and audio. Hive will assist Truth Social, to banish posts that are sexually explicit and violent, while also purging spam and content which is considered hateful. Well, hold the phone here. You guys said the whole point of launching this platform was free speech. That's what you said. Hey, there's too much suppression, there's too much censorship on Twitter and other social media platforms like Facebook, etc. By the way, true, true. There's also too much banning and censorship and algorithmic manipulation on YouTube. It's something I complain about all the time from a left perspective. But as they're demonstrating here, it was never about free speech for them. It was about them being the censors. They don't like that Silicon Valley oligarch billionaires that have liberal sensibilities, that they're the censors. I don't like that either. But my response is not, make me the censor. My response is, let's not censor. Their response is, let's posture like we're anti-censorship. But on day one, before day one, he's like, we're going to have to go ahead and censor. So you weren't being honest and upfront at any step of the way. That's obvious. Because look, if you want to say, this is fair, you say, well, we all agree, even, no matter how much in favor of free speech you are. If you're a free speech bro, free speech absolutist, whatever. And I am those things. But that doesn't mean you can do direct threats of violence, doxing, targeted harassment. Like, that's not allowed. Correct. Agreed. That doesn't mean, here's another one, that you can, like, literally commit a crime and then post it. Like, if you post something of somebody getting murdered, should that be allowed? Well, no, that's a crime. It's illegal. It should be illegal. Maybe there's some weird stretch of an argument of, like, You pull it down, but you still have it stored in a database so that the officials can use that to help crack the case and get the bad guy or whatever. But I get it. I get it. The point is, like, do we really want to facilitate that on our platform? Fine. Listen to what they said they're going to moderate. Sexually explicit posts. Violent posts. Well, hold on. Sexually explicit. Twitter even allows a bunch of sexually explicit content. Twitter even allows that. Do you want to be more restrictive than Twitter? Violent content. What do you mean violent content? Can you not post a boxing match? Can you not post something, you know, a clip from a UFC fight or something? That's violent. That's violent. Are you not allowed to do that? Uh, Purging spam content. Well, hold on. See, now we're getting beyond absurd. Spam, like, like trolly behavior. You can easily say, this is spam. When it's just a troll choosing to troll. So 
Should you ban that? No. Uh, look, I'm pro-troll. I'm allow- I-, I would allow people to troll. That's part and parcel of free speech. Say so, uh, No spam. And, and content which is considered hateful. Well, what's considered hateful is subjective, and it is totally in the eye of the beholder. Now, there is a point where just being hateful, it crosses a line into targeted harassment, in which case we all agree you can't allow that. Uh, but just being hateful in general, why shouldn't you be allowed to be hateful? Uh, you know, I, when I talk about how billionaires and corporations have rigged the system against working people and we should change that, some might say you're being hateful towards billionaires. Kind of. Should my stuff get pulled down as a result of that? I don't think so. So what do you mean? What do you mean, hateful? What does that mean? Look, they, they never believed in free speech truly as a matter of principle. They just want to be the censors. And you saw this perfectly with the MyPillow guy, Mike Lindell, when he wanted to launch his social media platform. He, the whole point, he, he was acting like it's all about free speech. And then he gives an interview and says, and we're not going to allow uh, nudity, cursing, taking the Lord's name in vain. Uh, and he had a whole list. So not only are you not in favor of free speech, you are less in favor of free speech than the people who you're complaining about. You're less in favor of free speech than Twitter. Uh, They never believed it. They never meant it. It's a tactic for them. It's a strategy for them. They are deploying it cynically. And you know what? Some people on the far right were at least honest enough to admit that. Like when Richard Spencer was caught saying, no, I obviously don't believe in free speech. I'm just using this as a tactic so they allow my shit to get out there. But if I had control, of course I wouldn't allow the leftist ideas out there. And by the way, they also totally misdiagnose the situation and pretend there's only censorship of right-wingers. They banned, like, every large Antifa account on Twitter. They did. Reddit banned Chapo Trap House alongside of the Donald Reddit. So if they banned Chapo, if they banned large Antifa accounts, if they banned a bunch of leftist accounts under the guise of, uh, it's Russian disinformation or something, pull it. No evidence presented. They're not, not actually funded by the Russian government, just people who are leftists. Well, this isn't a problem of just targeting the right with censorship. It's not. There's too much censorship across the board for a variety of different reasons. But their solution is not actually let's get rid of the censorship. Their solution is let's create our own platform in which we will censor. So that's their answer. Now you know their answer. What's my answer? Regulate all the large social media companies as if they're public utilities to expand First Amendment protections. That's it. Now, again, does that mean that you can do direct threats of violence and libel and slander and doxing and targeted harassment? No. But those things are already illegal. And so we, have, we will put a process in place where those things that are actually illegal are not allowed because illegal things, by definition, are not allowed. But outside of that, it's all systems go. So, but the way to do that is to regulate the big social media companies like their public utilities. That's the way you do that. And that's not what they want to do. So all these right-wingers who complain about it, Rand Paul complains about it all the time, oh, my God, this pressure and this and that, they all have the wrong answer. Their answer is, I don't know, more competition, like we'll try to compete with Twitter, but then also we're not even going to be in favor of free speech. We'll be less in favor of it than they are while we pretend we're more in favor of it. Do you see how these people are charlatans yet? Do you see it? Because it can't be more clear. It can't be more obvious. The only answer is the actual leftist answer, which I just gave you. So even if you're on the right and you support that, good. Say it. It's okay. And you can own it. That is a left-wing position. Granted, a lot of right-wingers posture like they're in favor of the left-wing position, but now you know at least the ones who have any power to do anything about it, do not support that leftist position. It's all posturing. Okay. There you have it. 
Uh, I don't know how Donald Trump's new social media app is going to do, but what I do know is it's not what they pretended it was going to be. This is another really good story. I got so many good stories today, I must say. Wait a second. Where are my notes on this one? Here we go. The Republican Party has taken a very bold step, the likes of which I didn't think anybody would ever really do. Let's take a look at this from The Guardian. They say, Republican Party signals plans to withdraw from U.S. presidential debates. Move comes after longstanding complaints from party that nonpartisan commission on presidential debates favors Democrats. Okay, um, a couple things to say about this. First of all, up front, do I really think when push comes to shove they're going to do it? Probably not. I would say it's 60-40 or 70-30 on the side of they're going to end up doing the debates. But having said that, why are they doing this? Well, I'll get, I'll get to that answer in a second, but let me give you more of the information. The Republican Party has signaled its plans to withdraw from traditional U.S. presidential debates, which it claims are biased against it. The New York Times first reported the move, citing a letter sent on Thursday by the Republican National Committee to Commission of Presidential Debates, to the Commission of Presidential Debates. The commission was set up in 1987, a nonpartisan body, quote, to ensure for the benefit of the American electorate, the general election debates between or among the leading candidates for the offices of president and vice president are a permanent part of the electoral process. Now, let me pause there. That's actually not true. Um, they, they had made moves over the years to not to make sure, hey, you hear from, um, you know, all the different perspectives and the leading candidates. They actually had crafted it so you leave out third-party voices and even independent voices. Because they made the mistake, mistake, of allowing Ross Perot into the debates. Um, and when he was allowed into the debates, he got, uh, I think he got like 19% of the national popular vote. And as, he didn't win any states, but he got like 19% of the popular vote. And so... He very clearly acted as what one would call a spoiler. Now, if it wasn't for Ross Perot, it's possible that um, George H.W. Bush would have won. Bob Dole, I don't think he would have won. Clinton sort of tracked Bob Dole. But George H.W. Bush may have won re-election if it wasn't for Ross Perot kind of acting as a spoiler. And what happened is the parties realized, look, this time maybe the, the independent candidate ruin the Republicans' chance of winning, but how do the Democrats know that next time an independent candidate wouldn't ruin their chance of winning? So basically they sort of shut the process out and made it, let's just have the Republican versus the Democrat. And that's why you had all these stories, whether it was Jill Stein or Gary Johnson, they couldn't, this back in 2016, of course, they made it like impossible for these people to get on the stage. So they're not, this isn't like a good organization that's on the up and up. It's like a, it's like direct collusion between Democrats and Republicans to keep the duopoly functioning. And it shouldn't be, of course. Of course, you should allow all the voices on the stage. Um, They continue here and say, in her letter, according to the Times, the RNC chair, Ronna McDaniel, said, quote, so long as the CPD appears intent on stonewalling the meaningful reforms necessary to restore its credibility with the Republican Party as a fair nonpartisan actor, the RNC will take every step to ensure that the future Republican presidential nominees are given that opportunity elsewhere. 
In a statement, the CPD said it, quote, deals directly with candidates for president and vice president who qualify for participation and said plans for 2024 will be based on fairness, neutrality, and firm commitment to help the American public learn about the candidates and the issues. Now, there's a, there's a problem with that statement on its own, which is, oh, we're committed to neutrality. No, we don't want you to be committed to neutrality. We want you to be committed to objectivity. And there's a difference. Neutrality is when you go out there and you're the debate moderator and you say, look, it's a 50-50 proposition, Democrat over here, Republican over here, and I'm going to be equal in every respect. I'm going to um, act like both sides have equal credibility and credence. Well, now what if you have the Republicans arguing that climate change is bullshit? And the Democrat says, no, it's real. If you're taking a neutral position, are you just going to not interject and say, well, that's not true, Mr. Republican candidate? Because that would be, as a debate moderator, you are supposed to have some commitment to the truth. But what this commission understands is if we care more about objectivity, of course the Republicans are going to come out looking worse because even though the Democrats and the Republicans are both bad, Republicans are just objectively wrong about more shit. They're every Republican candidate you know, says many more falsehoods than your average Democratic candidate, even though both parties suck. So com- commitment to neutrality is not the right value. It should be commitment to objectivity. Look, we'll tell the truth no matter what. And by the way, look, they got in trouble um, in, what was it, 2012, Mitt Romney versus Barack Obama. Uh, it, was, it was a famous moment with Candy Crowley of CNN where Mitt Romney tried to say Barack Obama didn't call something a terrorist attack, and Obama did, and Obama said he did, and Romney was convinced Obama didn't say that. So Candy Crowley had to step in and say he, he did say that it was a terror attack, and the right wing flipped out over it and acted like, well, that's, you're, you're not being fair because you're not being neutral. But it's a, it's a point of fact. It's a question of what's real, and she said what was real. Well, there was backlash, and then eventually she was let go from CNN. Maybe it had something to do with that. Probably had something to do with that. She was gone soon thereafter because she did her job well, and Republicans don't like that. They want you to be neutral and uh, never interject with actual information. Okay. So now, now we get to the main point. Why are Republicans doing this? If they're not actually going to um, stick by it, which, again, I don't think they are. I don't think they're going to stick by it. The reason they're doing it is to try to gain leverage and say, listen, we'll just walk away. If you don't let us do what we want to do, we're going to walk away. If you don't treat us more fairly, we're going to walk away. And so with the threat of, hey, we're going to leave, then the Republicans can turn around and say, you want us to do it? Fine. Look, we'll do it. Here are our terms. And their terms could be, you know, effectively, I don't know the specifics. We'd have to wait and see what they are. But we want One America News to do a debate or Newsmax to do a debate, too. We want uh, Fox News to do a debate. Or we want, when MSNBC or CNN does a debate, we want more conservative uh, reporters and journalists who do the questions or some of the questions. So they're going to try to use this leverage to then turn around and bias it more in favor of them. That's why I think they're doing it. And I bet it's going to work. I bet it's going to work. I bet what you're going to see is the, the breakdown of who the people asking the questions are. It's going to be skewed much more to the right. And you're going to have maybe one or two more Fox News debates or something like that. 
and they're going to try to micromanage it so that they can get as soft a situation as possible. But that look, that gets to the main point too, which is these guys pretend like we want to open free debate in the marketplace of ideas to prove that we're correct. But really when push comes to shove, that's the last thing they want. Because they know that if you have a real debate in a marketplace of ideas, they could get exposed. So they want to bias it in favor of them as much as possible. So really, to steal a word from 2014 vernacular, they're snowflakes. Like, they really are snowflakes. They don't trust the ability of the Republicans to be able to make their case effectively. Definitely don't trust them to do it against uh, hostile questions. But I got news for them. Even the way the debates have been to this point, they're comical, and the moderators don't go nearly hard enough on the Republicans. So no matter what, no matter what, they're going to get what they want, or they're going to get a situation that is more overly kind to them than it should be. But this is what they do. They, they're posturing here. And what's funny is that some might look at this as, like, oh, this is a macho move from the Republicans. It's actually the opposite. It's actually totally weak because they don't have faith enough in their abilities to really stand up and fight for their backwards, terrible ideas. That's what it is. Trump did the same thing. Remember when he pulled out of the Fox News debate because Megyn Kelly was going to be a moderator and she doesn't treat me very fairly. And so we pulled out. Trump's biggest sycophants acted like this is a strong, tough guy move. But everybody else correctly acknowledged, like, this is actually weak as fuck. You can't stand up to her? Seriously? You don't have faith in your own abilities to respond to her? And the answer is he didn't, because on some level he knew he was lying about a lot of the shit he was saying, and she might call him out on it, so he ran and, and hid. I think ultimately they will end up doing the debate, but they're doing a power play here. They're looking to get more leverage, and they're going to try to bias it more in their favor. Okay. Yet again, as per usual, my, um, my computer is acting up. I don't know why this always happens during the show. It's a pain in the ass cheeks. But I will try my best to soldier on here. Usually when I slow slow it down a little bit with the drag, I I just need a new trackpad on this computer. Anyway, let's talk about Spotify. Spotify, this is a really good story involving, I guess, former royalty at this point. I don't know. This uh, story really ramps up my hatred of elites. It's just such a good example of um, how unfair the system is and how entitled the elites are. So take a look at this. This is from an Australian uh news agency. Spotify steps in to bolster Megan and Harry's multi-million dollar podcast. Spotify has been forced to step in to bolster Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's $30 million podcast, which didn't publish a single episode in 2021. The specifics of this will make you want to bring the French Revolution back. Let me pull it up here in my notes, if I can get my fucking computer to work, which is a question. Let's see. Here we go. Quote, this is from the article, Spotify is taking Harry and Meghan's $30 million podcast project into its own hands. 
by hiring a host of in-house producers to finally help deliver content. So they did a deal with them. They're like, look, we'll give you $30 million to do a podcast for us. Then they just sat on that money for a year and did nothing. And Spotify reached out to them and said, like, what's going on? And they were like, oh, uh, see, what happened was me and Craig and them was down by the Safeway, and we don't even understand well, the point, and the new phone, who did? But, but I don't even know about the thing. You gave us the money, but what the podcast needs to be, how does the functioning of the help? So Spotify goes, all right, look, even though we just gave you $30 million, we were supposed to take some of that money and set up a fucking podcast studio and do some shit. They didn't do it, so... so um, Spotify's like, all right, we'll hire the people for you. The streaming giant has been waiting for more than a year for the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to produce material as part of their mega money deal. In a press release announcing the partnership in December 2020, Spotify said it was looking forward to a full-scale launch of shows in 2021. Instead, not a single episode was published. Now, bosses at the streaming platform are stepping in to help Harry and Meghan deliver the goods. Harry and Meghan's only podcast effort so far has been a 35-minute holiday special in December 2020 featuring Elton John and James Corden. Harry and Meghan's lack of content came despite the duo hiring high-flying podcast producer Rebecca Sinanes as their head of audio. With only one show under their belts, the streaming platform has so far paid the couple $940,000 for each minute. Now, by the way, I have no idea what the numbers are like on that one podcast they did, but I'm going to go ahead and guess it ain't good. Barack Obama did some podcast with like, was it Bruce Springsteen? I don't remember. And apparently the numbers were trash. See, now this always happens. You have independent-minded people, uh, young people sort of open up the frontier with this new technology and this new outlet. And then it flourishes and it flourishes largely because it's a forum for totally free and open debate and discussion. And it's just more honest and authentic than any old media stuff. Like go watch one of the late night shows and compare it to some two or three hour long podcast with creators who you like. And you'll see one is just totally fake and it's like celebrity culture pop nonsense. And the other one is like real conversations about real things that make you feel something. But after you have the success of the podcast, the elites look at that and say, well, I want to do that. But part and parcel of being successful in the podcast realm is openness, honesty, authenticity. And the elites almost by their very nature are sort of closed off and insular and they present more of a veneer to the world about how they're supposed to be and what the cool thing is than what they really are. And so historically, a lot of the big names, when they try to break into podcasting, they can't do it because they don't have, they're very different beasts, like being in movies or being in a sitcom or being some other singer, some other sort of celebrity. That's a different beast than the, the skill of bearing your soul to the world on a regular basis and being totally open and honest despite all your flaws. Well, they don't do that about their flaws. They, for them, it's all this veneer. They've been sort of propped up by a system that puts them there as some sort of figurehead, as some sort of ideal, but it's all bullshit. It's all kabuki theater. 
And then add on top of that, now the entitled angle. They got paid $30 million and did one episode. Thirty mil- Why? Why did you pay them that much money? Why did you do it? Why would you do that? Because you're just like paying for their name. But as Spotify is going to learn, and hopefully they did already learn, that doesn't mean anything in the podcasting world. I'd rather have Joe and Jane Schmo from the middle of nowhere who've been cranking out content on a regular basis for five years and they've gained an or- organic following. I'd rather have them on Spotify than these two entitled pricks who were just looking for a payday and don't even want to lift a fucking finger. They clearly don't even want to lift a finger. I mean, it's, it's really pathetic, man. This is really sad. Why would Spotify do this? Why would you do this? And, but this is what you're seeing now in the podcast market. Everything's sort of getting drowned out. And now the elites are trying to get a hold on this market more so. It happens with all, like, like YouTube was originally a place, really free and open area where people would go to escape the nonsense of traditional media. Well, now traditional media has gotten a stranglehold on YouTube, and YouTube is in bed with traditional media, and so then you had YouTube TV, and you had them trying to prop up certain more safe content over other content. And in the news and politics realm, it's never been more clear. They want to prioritize authoritative news sources. So my show, for example, other independent new media shows get destroyed by the algorithm, and we're replaced by CNN and MSNBC and Fox News. And don't take my word for it. You go look. We used to get recommended to all new people across the Internet, so our sub-numbers would grow at a tremendous clip. Well, now we don't get recommended to new people at nearly as high a rate. And so what happens is if, put on autoplay on YouTube and see what happens. Uh, almost all the time with my show, you will immediately get diverted. So it won't play one Kyle Klinsky show clip, then another, then another, then another. You will get sent to, like, Trevor Noah and The Daily Show or John Oliver because the YouTube algorithm has decided, oh, you like more outsider stuff. Well, here, let me give you the more safe-approved outsider stuff. And it crushes new media. It does. But now this once beautiful platform of YouTube has now been destroyed because they're just trying to redirect people back to the, to the stuff that they were trying to escape originally. And that, that sucks, man. And, I mean, I should consider myself one of the lucky ones, even though I'm screwed by the algorithm, because if I was starting from scratch now, I wouldn't make it. It's too hard to make it now if you try to do my show from day one. I had the benefit of at least being around for a while when the, the, when the algorithm was more meritocratic and fair. But you're seeing the same thing in the podcast world. Let's get the elitist assholes to do their own podcast. It's like this whole medium, this whole outlet was supposed to be for the outcasts, for the non-celebrity types, for regular people to have a say and have a voice. And look at what happens when they get into the business. They do no episodes, or they do one episode, and they get paid almost a million dollars a minute, $30 million. They can't even get their own producers and shit. I mean, for the love of God, they just could have turned on a a camera and started talking, or just started recording audio. Get some decent mics and record some audio, and one episode in a year, $30 million. Now, I look at this and ask you the question, is this a meritocracy? Is this the original idea of an open and and free and fair um, outlet? Is is that what this is, or has it now been taken over by the exact people we were trying to escape? I think you all know the answer to that. Next. Next. 
So there's a Daily Wire host by the name of Matt Walsh, and um, he does this segment here where he's talking about marriage. He is going to make a claim and make an argument that even surprises me. You shouldn't be surprised by much that comes out of a Daily Wire host's mouth, but this did it. Take a look. Meanwhile, there are far too many choices. So the modern dating scene is what happens when every beggar becomes a chooser. Everyone is lonely and desperate for companionship, but the field is so flooded with options, there's such a surplus that you begin to feel like, kind of like I feel when I'm in the condiment aisle at Walmart trying to buy mustard, and there are 197 different types of mustard, and though all I want is just regular mustard, the overwhelming array of options paralyzes me, and I'm just standing there slack-jawed, questioning whether I should be settling for just regular mustard when I could be getting gourmet, Dijon, whole grain, honey, French, yellow, spicy brown, white, yellow, German mustard instead. All of modern life is plagued by this problem. Everything is plentiful and can be obtained effortlessly and cheaply. But it's too plentiful and too effortless and too cheap. So you can turn on your TV and watch literally any movie that's ever been made, any TV show that's ever been produced, and yet how many nights have you wasted scrolling through the infinite catalog and then settling on reruns of, you know, The Office because there's nothing else to watch? Well, there's plenty to watch. It's just that you can't settle on any one thing because your awareness that there are billions of other possibilities gives you anxiety, and it makes it so that you can never be sure that you're choosing the absolute best option, which means that often you don't choose anything else. So dating is like this. Whereas before you had only the eligible single people in your town to choose from, now you have the entire Internet. You're not confined by geographic boundaries or any other boundaries. The result, ironically, is paralysis. Now, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum are arranged marriages. Instead of a boundless, never-ending buffet of options, a young person in a culture that practices arranged marriages will be assigned just one, and they don't even make the choice. Their families just pair them up and say, here you go. There's far less freedom and far less autonomy in a system of that sort, but it is without a doubt superior to our system. We, we would be happier. Every person in the dating scene right now would be happier if they were just matched up with someone against their will, actually. He says it's without a doubt superior to our system. Without a doubt, as if it's some sort of fact. So let's run through this. There's a bunch of responses to this. First of all, the question is what do you value? Do you value marriage in and of itself? Is that the end goal, regardless of the nature of the marriage? And if it brings you positive experiences or negative experiences or, you know, a tumultuous time or long-term joy, is the, is the end goal marriage in and of itself is a good thing? My guess is he would say yes because of the argument that he's making. That's not what I would say. Because the value that I hold most close in this conversation is freedom. So I think freedom is a value that's above other considerations when it comes to something like marriage. And notice something. Republicans often say, like, that is their, the thing they value most is freedom. And they use it in the context of uh, economics. They say, look, we believe in freedom. We believe in a free market. Any sort of government regulations or red tape, that's imposing on our freedom, and we value freedom more than anything else. Well, apparently you don't value freedom more than anything else. And by the way, even when they use it in a market context, it's incredibly misleading because it's freedom for who in a so-called free market? It's freedom for the business owner, for the capital class. It's really economic dictatorship for your workers, for your employees who have to listen to what you say, and they don't have much freedom in that respect. 
do that. So, but they claim, oh, we value freedom. And they talk about it all the time in flowery speeches about liberty and America and, and freedom. They say they believe freedom of speech. Well, apparently freedom is not the thing he values most, particularly when it comes to this. Freedom is further down the list with things he values when it comes to relationships and when it comes to marriage. Well, I totally disagree with that. I, I, I personally value freedom more than any of the other stuff. Now, there's another issue that you run into. Look, in my experience, and maybe this is just me, you guys can tell me your experience, relationships need to be organic in order for them to be fruitful, meaningful, and have long-term stability. You can't go into something with a set idea in your head and then try to cling to that notion because that sort of gets in the way of the natural flourishing of a relationship. Everything needs to be organic and needs to blossom on its own. It needs to be a process where you maybe start with just relatively benign intentions or no intentions whatsoever, and then a relationship develops. And then you, without even trying, you build a, a deep, dedicated bond. And, I, you know, it's been like that in my life with friendships, and it's been that way in my life with relationships. Is that it has to be organic in order, for it to, in order for it to really be stable and secure in the long run. You can't just slap two people together and say, give it a shot. What? Another issue. If you have an arranged marriage, an arranged marriage what if you aren't sexually attracted to the person who's supposed to be your significant other forever? That seems like it might be a slight issue. If part of being in a relationship is personal intimacy and sexuality, and you're not attracted to the person who you're with, how's that going to work out? doesn't seem very stable in the long run. Now, you might have a totally loveless, sexless marriage, but that's not what I would want. Is that what you would want? Certainly not what I would want. Maybe Matt Walsh has different ideas about that. I don't know. Um, and then to the point he made about mustards, like, man, it would be easier if there was just one mustard option. But having 100 mustards, even though it can definitely lead to paralysis of analysis, he's right about that. When it can be overwhelming when there's so many choices. But I would still rather have the choice of 100 mustards than having one. I still think that's preferable. And you know what your response to that should be? To have a little bit of discipline and have a little bit of confidence and certitude when you're picking the mustard. And you know what? Maybe over time you can try literally all 100 of them and find the absolute best one. If you're just given one mustard option, and Cody Johnson made a great point about this on Twitter. He was like, if we had one mustard option, then Matt Walsh, since he's right wing, he would come out there and say, this is like communism. What, you only have one mustard option? That's nothing. This is what it would be like in Venezuela or Cuba or whatever. I don't like that. I want more choice. That's what he would say if there was actually only one mustard available. There's also not good data on whether or not arranged marriages are happier because divorces in countries that have arranged marriages, usually they're more heavily frowned upon and these are even more conservative areas. And so you can't really, because there was one study that said arranged marriages are happier, but it's self-reported data. And how can you trust the self-reported data when you live in a culture and a society that so frowns upon divorce and, and things of that nature. It just seems like that's not really reliable data. It is true that in India, for example, the divorce rate is almost nothing. It's like 1%. But one of the reasons for that is they have, uh, I think it's, you need mutual agreement for a divorce. So like they both have to agree. So it's just a lot harder to get a divorce and cult and, the culture and the society frowns upon it massively. Now, Mount Walsh might like that, but I just view that as what? Your freedom being restricted by external pressures. 
And so a lot of people are probably in really miserable marriages. I don't think like, oh, if it's arranged marriages, like 100% of the marriages are then happy. No. And we know the divorce rate here is what, 49%, 50% or something like that? That just shows me that's the nature of reality in relationships. And sometimes it doesn't work out. And sometimes you get into it for the wrong reasons. And uh, about half of them are just not going to work out. And of the remaining marriages, what percentage of them are actually happy? 25%? So is it half of the half of marriages that make it, are they happy? So that would be like 25% of them. Maybe that's the number. I don't know. But I don't think there's any good, reliable data on, well, arranged marriages are definitely happier. Because there's one study that says it's about the same, and there's one that says arranged marriages are happier, but it's self-reported data. And because of all the external factors, I don't know if you can really uh, take that at face value. And by the way, final point is, he doesn't even touch on the whole purpose of what marriage was supposed to be. Because... And this is according to an article in The Week that laid it out. Quote, marriage's primary purpose was to bind women to men and thus guarantee that a man's children were truly his biological heirs. Through marriage, a woman became a man's property. So this, like, you need to understand the history of it to then understand how we got to where we are now. And perhaps a sort of arranged marriage type situation is a lot more political and economic than one might think. You know, it's certainly not about love. And I don't know about you guys, but again, I come back to my original point, which is I value freedom more than other stuff on this front. And if the marriage doesn't work out, hey, it doesn't work out. But if it does work out, that's great. And um, either way, I would like the wiggle room to be able to control my own destiny on this front. I don't want my parents or anybody else in society slapping me together with somebody and saying, good luck. Matt Walsh has very, very different ideas about it, and that's obvious. All right, next. Here we go. So Howard Stern has been very aggressively pro-vaccine, as we've covered on this show before. Um, Joe Rogan has not been as nearly pro-vaccine, there are times that he says, listen, if you're in an at-risk group, definitely get vaccinated. But he's questioned whether or not it's necessary for young people and healthy people. Um, And he's had a number of people on his podcast, I think Dr. McCullough and Dr. Malone, who have been pretty strongly anti-vaccine, and they've made some very questionable arguments, in my opinion. I listened to uh, both of those podcasts, but for one of them, I was like, sort of Google fact-checking as the guy went along, and a lot of the claims were just ridiculous. I mean, that guy Malone, right after he was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast, he was on Alex Jones' show, and he was talking about the Great Reset Theory. Getting a little bit extreme. It's getting out there. And as my general take on it is always, if somebody's telling me, somebody's an expert, and they're telling me that 95 or 99% of the other experts are wrong, I'm going to be a little more skeptical of this person because we've seen it in the climate change debate. What happened in the climate change debate? You know, you have 95 or 99% of climate scientists are like, hey, man, climate change is happening. It's real. It's bad. We need to do something about it to, to fix it. And then you have like 1% or 5% at most, but probably more like 1% who uh, are either skeptical of it because they've misread the data or they're skeptical of it for nefarious purposes because they're getting paid by Chevron or some lobbying group that's funded by some big oil company. So I'm always going to be skeptical. So 
the, re the reason I'm pro-vaccine is because there were a number of independent studies that came out. I don't care about the studies from Pfizer, for example, about their own vaccine, because they usually do juice the numbers, and we've seen it. Johnson & Johnson, same thing. But when you look at independent studies that come out, like that French study of over 20 million people that found that vaccines reduce severe illness, hospitalization, and death of COVID by over 90%, well, then I go, look, that's, it works. What do you want me to tell you? That doesn't mean there aren't, in some instances, some tiny percentage of cases, some uh, side effects that could be damaging and devastating. Of course that can happen. But that's the same with any treatment or any drug. So anyway, this is my long way of saying uh, you should be skeptical, just as skeptical, if not more skeptical, of the anti-vax voices as you are of Big Pharma. Because I'm a big opponent of Big Pharma, but that also doesn't mean that antibiotics don't work. They do work. So Howard Stern's been pro-vaccine. Joe has not been as uh, pro-vaccine at all. And you have... Who was, it, was, it was Neil Young who came out and said, apparently his music's on Spotify and Joe Rogan's on Spotify, so Neil Young says, look, Spotify choose me or him. Either take my music off the platform or take Joe Rogan off the platform because uh, I, don't, I think that what he's doing is dangerous with the vaccines. So here's Howard Stern coming out and talking about this. And uh, I want to listen to his comments and then dissect them. I just think he's saying, look, I don't want to be part of this organization because if my music is helping people bring people to the table and then they're spreading something as lethal as don't take the vaccine, do this. Mm, that makes you know, sense. He, yeah, I, you know, I'm against any kind of censorship, really. You know, I really am. I don't like censorship. But when you're talking about life and death, like poor Meatloaf got sucked into some weird fucking cult and somehow really believed that he, he made a statement, I'd, ra I'm, I'd rather die a free man than take that vaccine. And now he's dead. Yeah. So, don't know if you caught it there, but Howard Stern, in the middle of that rant, said, uh, I don't like censorship of any kind. And he goes on to say he doesn't want Joe Rogan to get canceled. You didn't hear it in that clip, but apparently in the longer clip, according to Mediaite, that's what he said. And... Um, I, the one area where I disagree with Howard Stern is that I do think Neil Young, to one extent or another, is calling for censorship. Because if he's saying, hey, Spotify, it's me or Rogan, if Spotify picks Neil Young, Neil Young's not going to be like, okay, no, pick Joe and pull down my stuff. So in other words, if Spotify says, we pick you, Neil Young, and we're axing Joe Rogan, he'd be like, cool. So that is sort of Neil Young advocating for censorship, to one extent or another. Now, of course, the reality is, Neil Young, uh, or uh, Spotify is not going to kick off Joe Rogan. So if they're not going to kick off Joe Rogan, they're going to end up kicking off Neil Young. So he effectively is not going to end up censoring Joe Rogan, but clearly that was the underlying implication of what Neil Young was saying. It was, hey, me or Joe, it wasn't um, just pull down my stuff because I don't want to be associated with it. That's going to be what ends up happening, but he gave them the option. You see what I'm saying? So that's the area where I disagree with Stern, but... The area where I agree with him is, look, he's right. There was that thing that came out, 270 doctors it was originally, and I saw another article or 1,000 doctors uh, wanted to pull Joe Rogan's podcast over the, the vaccine stuff. And when you read the specifics, actually, there was only, it, was much, it was a much smaller number of doctors, and there was a lot of people in there that weren't doctors, that all the headlines, they were pretending they were doctors. So it was kind of misleading up front. But bottom line is, and even Howard Stern believes this, and he's ruthlessly pro-vaccine, He's like, look, they can be wrong, 
And maybe there even are terrible consequences associated with this message being pumped out there, but you can't pull it down. You can't pull it down. And that's exactly where I am on this. The way it needs to be approached is all of the claims that are made by these anti-vaccine doctors. Now, by the way, some of them play hide the ball. And they're like, no, 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 I'm just anti-mandate. I'm not anti-vaccine. Well, if you say you're anti-mandate but not anti-vaccine, and then like 95% of your commentary on the vaccine is how the vaccines are bad, and you have anecdotes about how they're no good, and so you lead people in the direction of don't take the vaccine, just stop playing hide the ball and just admit it. Just say, look, I am anti-vaccine. At least own it. Like, at least with RFK Jr., he owns it. He says it. So on the one hand, that's more respectable because it's like, look, you're wrong, but I respect you for at least saying it and not playing hide the ball. A lot of people play hide the ball with this shit. So, but, but the real way to respond to this stuff is to have other experts go point for point and respond to all of the inaccuracies of Malone and McCullough. And there are many inaccuracies of Malone and McCullough. They are taking fringe positions scientifically. And those fringe positions, a lot of them, a lot of things they said are just not true. So, but that's the way you respond to it. And by the way, what do they do? They don't do that. Instead, you have doctor, some doctors and some social workers and others who are on this list that come out and say, just pull it down because it's bad. Well, then you're making them victims and martyrs. And that's not a good idea. That's really not a good idea. When YouTube pulled down some of the stuff from Malone or McCullough, whichever one it was, then the Spotify numbers shot through the roof. Because people were like, oh, YouTube doesn't want me to see this. Well, now I'm going to go to Spotify and watch it. And more people even watched it. So that attempt to like just shut down the conversation ended up backfiring massively. It's sort of like a version of the Streisand effect. So now I will say, apparently Rogan is about to have on, I don't know when, but very soon he's about to have on um, a doctor who is very pro-vaccine. And I'm very happy that Joe is doing that because I think that's the responsible thing to do and the correct thing to do. And I think that that person is right on the substance and the facts and his audience should be exposed to that perspective as well. And um, it's just about having somebody who's competent respond to all of the points of Malone and McCullough and explain why, hey, a lot of this, a lot of this stuff that they're putting out there is just wrong. And so that's the way you handle it. By the way, there's already been, I forget the guy's name, but there was one doctor who did this on YouTube and the video did pretty well. It got a lot of views. One guy breaking down a lot of the the claims of, I think it was Malone that that person did it with. But that's the way you handle this, guys. I, I don't, nobody should take the shortcut. Nobody should take the cheap way out. And just, well, just shut it down because it's wrong. I actually agree that what they're saying is wrong, but you have to address it head on. You have to not be weaselly about it and try some backdoor effort to shut it all down. And so I think Howard Stern, apart from the Neil Young thing where I have disagreements with him, I think he sort of hits the right note here where he's like, look, don't, don't do censorship. And I think the reason he feels that way is because they tried to censor him a zillion times in his career. And so he has a soft spot on that. So even though he really disagrees with Joe on the vaccine, he's like, I, you just, I, you can't pull it down. You just can't do that. So somebody already did go through a lot of the claims of the anti-vax doctors. I think more competent people should do that to show exactly how they're wrong and thankfully, Joe is going to have on somebody who's very pro-vaccine soon. Um, that's the only way to handle this. That's the best way to handle this. Do I wish that these dubious characters up front were not given the massive platform? Yes. But just because I think they're, they're so wrong about so much that it is only harmful to give them that platform. But once you do give them that platform, you can't just ban it. Then you're in a position now where you got to sort of clean up the mess and hopefully have on somebody 
who's intelligent enough and charismatic enough and factual enough where they could break down the claims and uh, people can have a, a changed perspective about the information that they've currently been given. So anyway, there you have it. Um, Howard Stern, I think, generally hits the right note here. And I look forward to the pro-vaccine doctor on Joe Rogan, and hopefully he does a great job breaking down a lot of the false claims of the previous ones and convincing people that actually they're wrong and the vaccine is good. Okay, final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. So this is something that is absolutely fascinating. Let me go ahead and throw this up there for you. The tweet says, incredible, less than two months after New York City opened the first two supervised drug consumption sites in the United States, they have reversed 114 overdoses. So this is from, I believe, Politico. Cities supervised injection sites reverse over 100 overdoses. It is Politico. There you go. New York City's two supervised drug injection sites have reversed more than 100 overdoses since they opened their doors less than two months ago. The nation's first officially authorized injection sites began operating at the end of November, one in East Harlem and one in Washington Heights. They allowed clients to openly use drugs under the supervision of trained staff, hoping to combat an overdose crisis that killed more than 2,000 people in the city in 2020. Damn, 2,000. They have reversed 114 overdoses, according to data from the program first reviewed by Politico. Quote, the need is greater than anyone even expected, said Sam Rivera, executive director of On Point New York City, which runs the facilities. The city health department initially estimated that injection sites, also known as overdose prevention centers, could save up to 130 lives a year. Well, my guess is it's going to be more than 130 lives a year because in two months it was 114. Now, maybe you say, hey, not all those overdose people would have died, but some percentage of them would. I don't know what the exact answer would be there, but it looks to me like they'd save more lives than that. So, listen, this is one of those issues where, honestly, if you asked me about it, I would have said, that's a bridge too far. I don't think I'm in favor of that. But now when you look at the data and you look at the positive effects, I, I changed my mind. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. The reason why I say that is because my approach when it comes to drugs is I want to legalize, tax, and regulate them. So with that being the approach, it's just sort of in the marketplace. The government's like not really involved. This is an instance where the government is involved and they have the injection centers, but the whole point of them having the injection centers is to save lives lives if need be. Because if people are going to do the drugs anyway, and they are, some percentage are going to do the drugs, then it's good to have medical professionals there in case something happens. Now, of course, the right-wing reaction to this generally is when you have injection sites like this, what are you doing? You're incentivizing people to do the drugs, and you're saying it's okay to do the drugs. And they don't think it's okay to do the drugs, so they want to disincentivize people from doing the drugs, so of course they don't want these centers open. But the fact of the matter is, as I already laid out, people are going to do the drugs regardless. It's just a matter of do you want them you know, sharing a needle and spreading around diseases in some dark back alley and overdosing and dying, or... Would you rather have public health be the main concern and you could do it like this and end up saving lives? And as long as your concern is public health and saving lives, then the answer is a no-brainer now because the data is in. So I was previously against this policy because I didn't see how the government should be involved with drugs. I just want to legalize tax and regulate and leave it to the marketplace. But now I look at this and I say, no, this is the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do. You're not incentivizing people to take the drugs. People are going to take the drugs anyway. And um, if you can save lives and impact public health in a positive way. The other thing is you get clean needles, you're not spreading around diseases. That's also a massive upside. So I guess the point here is there are some policies that are going to objectively, empirically be good 
that maybe on paper or in theory sort of sound a little wacky. And I think it's important in politics to be open-minded about solutions because sometimes solutions come along that at face value might sound absurd, but they actually have a tremendous number of upsides and very few, if any, downsides. So I don't think the right is going to be in favor of stuff like this, but you can't deny this is a massive success. If you're in favor of these 114 lives being saved, it's a success. If you're in favor of lower disease rates, it's a success. So I may have been against it before, but I'm learning and I'm growing, and I see now that it's the right thing to do. So we should probably do this all around the country, because how many lives will we save if we do that? Now, by the way, final point, when we had the opioid pill crisis, there were a lot of people dying every year from the pills. Well, now they crack down on the pills. And they crack down on the pills, and the, then everybody went to the black market and started getting heroin instead of the pills to scratch their itch. And then when they got heroin, a lot of the heroin is cut with fentanyl, and more people died. So when we had the pills out there, fewer people were dying from overdoses. Now we've cracked down on the pills, and more people are dying because they're going to the black market and getting fentanyl-laced heroin. So there's another lesson in there about, hey, something that sounds good in theory, right? Hey, the pills are killing people in a very high number. I forget what the number was, 30,000 a year or something to that effect. So we just ban the pills or, or drastically reduce the pills by having strict rules on doctors about prescribing these things. Well, look at what happened. The unintended consequence of a policy that sounded good on paper was more people dying. And by the way, there's another unintended consequence of people who fucking need the pills for chronic pain now not being able to get them. You know, shit, I experienced this when I tore my calf and I was in the emergency room. They wouldn't even give me Tylenol or Motrin, never mind a Vicodin, which I definitely could have used. So sometimes the things that sound good on paper are actually terrible. Sometimes the things that sound wacky on paper are actually awesome, and you have to follow the data, and there's a great example of it here. All right, guys, we are done. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of your day. I'll talk to you soon. Johan Hari on Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. It should be really interesting. Love y'all. Peace. I'm out. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.